Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. This week, Robin and our returning guest host, Beck Hill, are chatting to Jarrett Kobeck, the US author we've talked about a lot on this show, uh, author of I Hate the Internet and his new book, Only Americans Burn in Hell. He's in the studio with Robin and Beck. Before we start, thanks as always go to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles, where you can go to pledge and be one of them and get uh, extended episodes and other bonus offers and things as well. Uh, We've got some exciting stuff coming up for patrons, including uh, free tickets to some upcoming uh, Scratch performances and work-in-progress shows. It was great to meet a lot of our Patreon supporters at some of the work-in-progress shows for Chris and Steve's Universe of Music recently. More events like that coming up for Patreon supporters. And some of the events coming up that you can buy tickets to now are Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, obviously back in December. Seven shows this year, four evening performances at King's Place in London, two evening performances at the Lowry up in Manchester, and then a Sunday matinee for families. That will be a family-focused, shorter show, so everyone of all ages can come along to that. Lots of great performers will be at those shows. Robin and Josie, obviously, Beck will be there too. Matt Parker, Helen Chersky, Dan Davis, Lucy Green, Lindsay Fitzharris, Joe Neary, all sorts of amazing people. So get your tickets for those from the Cosmic Shambles website. And we'll be at lots of festivals as well at the Cheltenham Science Festival with Signals and Chris and Steve's show. We'll be at Latitude. We'll be at Blue Dot as well events page on cosmicshambles.com is where you'll find all the details for those robin is going to be at the soho theater in july with chaos of delight and then on the road with a new version of that show in november all around the uk including heading up to scotland and over to wales as well and beck and josie are going to be at edinburgh this year for august with brand new shows for both of those tickets for them will be going pretty quick so get in early there uh likewise the christmas compendium of reason at hammersmith apollo tickets for that are moving very quickly our annual extravaganza there with robin and brian and all sorts of secret guests and now on to the episode this week with robin beck and jarrett kobeck Anyway, huh. I, I, I don't know why I've just talked about this. Well, that's a great opening. Anyway, you're listening minutes. to uh, Josie and Robin's uh, Book Shambles, and that was uh, Jarrett Kobeck talking about his favourite uh, book, which is one we're not talking about today. Yes. Except <laughs> now we are. Yeah. I like yeah. the it's an inter- that nostalgia thing. Is it, it, it reminds me of uh, on the old kind of comedy circuits, quite often where, you know, where everyone just did jokes. People, if they went up and they were too original, people would heckle them and say... Tell us one we know, and that's what. <laughs> and I think you, that bit where sometimes you buy a book and actually you don't want to learn that much. Right. From it. What you want is you just want to go. Oh yeah, that's my shared memory. 
That's mm. and, and I'm, yeah. I would be much more interested in you know as someone with no real knowledge of, of video games, this idea of the story right. of soft because I didn't know. But Hungerford for me was the predominant memory of that was Rambo got blamed. Yeah, you know, yeah, that, that was. It's, and then this got tied into it like two or three days later, and not on the basis of the game, on the basis of the cover art because it was published by. Oh God, I can't remember. It was it was published by a firm called the Powerhouse, and the Powerhouse had licensed all of this paperback science fiction horror artwork from a guy named Tim White. And so, on Soft and Cuddly, they used one of the oil paintings Tim White had done for an edition of H.P. Lovecraft, where it's like some weird demon standing on a pile full of heads and the heads are so photorealistic that they're clearly all the artist's friends. Um, and that, and like they didn't play the game, but they just reacted to the cover artwork and was like this. Sick. We all did that as yeah, kids though. Yeah, yeah. Remember the first time you play like Paperboy and you're like, what? Yeah. This isn't three dimensional. <laughs> But that's, I mean, that, that's almost, that's the majority of our existence, isn't it? Which is, I think, you know, the age I am in terms of uh, horror comics, in terms of, you know, the covers of, of VHS videos. Oh, where, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was a horror fan from the age of eight, but I didn't actually see a horror movie till Pit and the Pendulum with Vincent Price, which is, you know, Roger Corman right. uh, Poe adaptation. And of course, very few films will ever be as good as what you have created. In, in, in your mind. And I think, you know, that, 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 you know, that we're still playing the same games. And in, in some ways I wonder, and I don't know whether I should crowbar this in, but <laughs> it, when you're, you know, in both I Hate the Internet and, uh, and, and, and the new one, Only, Only Americans uh, Burn in Hell, so much of it is about this perpetual surface world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hate the internet in particular, kind of Twitter and social media, where you know the, these perpetual outbursts of, 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 of morality, these pinpricks of morality, which just um, that bit where so everything is cover art. We, we're living in a world. I right. just wondered whether that is in some ways the sensibility, which is there is no depth. Yeah, you know, the, the way that you you deal with the. Uh, I was going to say the characters in Only Americans Burn in Hell, but of course you're actually the main character right. in Only Americans Burn well, in Hell. Well, a variant and obviously of you're, yeah. uh, I can say, uh, magical bullshit as well. Right. Uh, so <laughs> that, um, is that part of, of what you feel those two books are, 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 are railing yeah. against? Yeah, I, I've actually recently, and it's not in any of the books because uh, unfortunately these things come to you after people have put a lot of money into actually printing versions of these things. But I I came up with this term for what I think Only Americans Burn in Hell is actually about, which is what I would call the acceptable good. Um, And it is, you know, like I think with I Hate the Internet, it's really, really easy to pick on tech companies, and God knows that they deserve it. But with Only Americans Burn in Hell, it was this sort of realization that happened after I Hate the Internet came out that actually all of these companies are have, uh, and and by that I mean like the people who control media. Like in America, it's about 10 companies. If you're lucky, it might be down to seven. I haven't Mm. checked the news today. Um, You know, that they are now practicing this really strange corporate thing where there are companies that do 
in some cases more than others, really appreciable harm or have done appreciable harm to society, but they also have, you know, like the standards of HR and what you can and can't do. And that what makes it the acceptable good is that basically those standards aren't wrong, right? Like if you're running a company, you don't want to have employees who are grotesquely biased or of the far right or fascists on Twitter. Um, But at the same time, the companies themselves are doing really terrible things. And it's it's something about that disconnect between what people say and what people do um, that I think really animates that book. Uh, what animates I Hate the Internet is just personal problems. <laughs> uh, you know, I was in San Francisco and it was awful. Um, but this one I think is, sli- despite me now being a character in the book, I think is slightly depersonalized in a odd way, in a way that I think actually I Hate the Internet isn't. Well, that's... what. Well- it does seem to really the, the, the one of the biggest problems one of the you know where, where cognitive dissonance is most required is the moment that you have any ethical or moral position right there are ways in which it can be rooted out and destroyed yes so if you dare and, and I can't remember I'm trying to find I actually wrote down that the, the, there's a quote where you talk about Trump and in fact you know that the position that the moment you have some kind of morality then you can be destroyed but yes. if in fact your entire life it's not immorality that you use I've, I've put it down here somewhere but there, there was something that you pinpointing that thing where he can manage to survive because he is a man without right. shame so well, whereas so many people can be shot down by shame yeah. This level of shamelessness means yeah. that the previous bullets are now nothing. They're eviscerated. Yeah, I think the only possible lesson of Trump and the way that things have played out in the Trump era, in the U.S. in particular, is that if you are going to make the mistake of getting involved in public life, and I do kind of think it's a mistake at this point because the only thing you can really expect is abuse and hate, um, there's no point setting yourself up as a figure of virtue um, because the only place you can go is down. Mm. But if you set yourself up as a figure of vice, the only place you can go is up. And I think in the book, the the, the comparison is between, like, if the Queen of England trips over a dog, that is will be a national story, right? And it's like, is she being cruel to animals? And, it, and, and, you know, not that I have a lot of fondness of the Queen of England, but that is a person who comes cloaked in centuries of virtue, um, presumed virtue, versus, like, if Liam Gallagher kicks a pensioner down the stairs, it's just Liam being Liam, right? Like, he might get some flack for it, but ultimately, that's survivable, and so it's a, it's a really strange dynamic that's been put into place. And I think Trump is the perfect example of it because you can be a person who has been fundamentally characterized for decades as a creature of vice and just end up as the president. And, you know, it's not clear to me he even wanted to win that election and then still happened, you know. Mm. That does seem to be the biggest. I mean, for for a lot of people of a kind of liberal bent now, that uh, or or in evan in any way trying to think in an evidence based way, 
there seems to be this impossibility. It's, it's a bit like the first time you argue with creationists, and then you suddenly realise what a pointless endeavour it is, apart from one time you should argue with flat earthers once and creationists once, whatever, and it will show you the, the pretty much the full mu- mindset and the position, and, and you don't need to do it again. You don't need to mm. become addicted to these arguments, because the use of language, the use of, 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 of logic, ideas of reality, are so separate to what you might see, as you, that, that you go, well, I'm not going to become addicted to sitting on this high horse, as right. you know. And um, that seems to be the hardest thing people are having. So they go, how can Fox News say that where the, that guy was just trying to keep hold of the mic to ask his questions and that was seen as the greatest act of misogyny, but this guy said grab him by the pussy. And But I don't under... And this battle mm. is... You know, th- this is where I see an enormous collapse in terms of of, uh, of, of, of humans with any hope of progress. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I tend to think that if there is a virtue to Trump, and it is a small virtue. He has been incredibly instructive if you know how to look at it or you train yourself to look at it um, in revealing how thin the veneer of what we have all assumed civilization is for the last hundred years. Uh, he has he really revealed that actually some very primal things that have always been there have been operating and may have been running the show the whole time and are also combined with some very primal is the wrong word but I don't know what the right word is some very primal things about media that we've sort of known but that we haven't ever really had it focused to this point and that maybe there are rules to how you can operate in the media that exist totally in opposite or in opposition to everything that we've thought was how you had to operate in public life, and you can still survive, and in fact, maybe you can flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's terrifying, but it 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 does seem to sort of be the underlying message of of his presidency. I mean, I think a lot of the problem with Trump and why people have had this massive cognitive dissonance about him is that most people in opposition to him and maybe in support of him too have this this expectation that this is this is a thing that is going to operate by any of the rules that yeah. we have imagined that people operate operate by and he doesn't in any way like i don't think he lies because i don't think he exists in reality i think what comes into his head is just what he says and yeah. that there's no there's no like whatever presumably the three of us have as people with some uh anchor to a shared reality i'm not sure he has that at all well i think it's almost i think what frustrates so many people is that the his disregard for the rules and i don't, i think you're right i don't think they're conscious either yeah. Uh, very similar to that of a child. Yeah. But like when, but like I was like that as a kid. I reckon I was like I would lie to get my like if oh, I no. believed in my lie, I would tell it. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes I was conscious of the lies because I knew it's what would get me what I wanted or out of trouble. Sometimes I wasn't conscious of the lies, but you know, like I was a bratty kid. Yeah. But then you you reach a moment and something clicks and whether it's like just enough people telling you that it's wrong Mm -hmm. or seeing the consequence of when it is wrong 
and going, oh, that doesn't feel right. Like when your morality kicks in and then you you sort of get that taken out and then you sort of level up to the right. next stage of humanity. Right. And I feel like he never leveled up. And that's so frustrating that so many people are like, treat him the same way as some adults treat those kids where they're like, oh, but, you know, it's a, they're exploring themselves. Right. And like, no, <laughs> you've had enough time. But, I mean, the thing that's crazy about him is that he was encouraged to do that in public life and to stay that way mm. um, basically up until, what, 2012. That's when the first real negativity about Trump um started to emerge and that's because it started to become clear maybe a little earlier but it started to become clear he really had a pre- uh, problem with Obama and and was on this sort of citizenship or sorry wet uh, birth certificate mm. nonsense and that but prior to that Trump was like charismatic yeah, yeah. and i mean the the first time he's mentioned in the New York Times which is i think in the late 70s they refer to him as Robert uh, Robert Redford esque, which is like, I'm sorry, that was not true at, <laughs> at the time. I mean, he didn't look like he looks now, but it just wasn't true. And then, you know, I, I the th- the thing that's so weird about him is that he was such a dominant presence in media. I um, I read that I was reading this book. Uh, that was published in 2000, and it's a book about how tabloid culture sort of infected um, what you would consider to be the sober outlets of American journalism. Mm. And like I said, it's published in 2000. There's three chapters in there about Trump and his divorce, his first divorce from the late 80s or the early 90s. And it was like this produced the biggest spurt in sales in the New York daily tabloids of any story. And it was this moment of some kind of conversion to like, I mean, you know, no one would accuse the New York Post of that era of being a particularly responsible outlet. But at the same time, like they had the they had like Trump's wife went to their gossip columnist, Liz Smith, and gave her side of the story. And then Trump, I think, was feeding his side of the story to the Daily News, something like that. But it, it just generated this enormous amount of revenue for these newspapers. And it's this very strange thing because the book was published in 2000. And you're reading it, and it's just like every couple of sentences. It's like, and now this guy is the president. Mm-hmm. You know, now this person who's being written about in a kind of mocking way, treated as like this deeply unsavory figure, this creation of gossip, this this beast that exists solely in media coverage, and now he controls 6,000 6, nuclear warheads, and now he's dismantling the remnants of, you know, the American welfare state. Mm. Now he's you know, doubting climate change or whatever it is, you know. And it's it's just, you can, there's so much media that pre-exists his, pre-exists his presidency that you now see. And it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in your life. I mean, the weirdest of the weird is that, <laughs> I think in 99 or 2000, MTV did 
uh, when when that election was happening, although it might have been 2004, I, they did this thing with Eminem where, like, it was the slim, shady uh, presidential or can, uh, I can't even remember. Whatever it is where they get nominated, national convention, the slim, shady national convention. And the person who gives Eminem his nominating speech for the presidency is Donald Trump. And so when you're seeing the video, it's Trump at a podium with the seal. And I think probably the seal says something slightly different. But it's totally indistinguishable from what is now present-day reality. Mm. And it's him talking about how awesome Eminem is, which I agree. Eminem is awesome. (laughs) I do not know... He's the best. Yeah. I hear according to Trump. Yeah, yeah exactly. But that is, that, that's a fact that I'm trying to remember there was an author who bought a book about five years ago uh, who, it's something like Uses of Illusion, but it's not called that, which is uh, where the first chapter is about the nature of, of wrestling coverage in America right. and how all public discourse has become that same level of fake. Mm. And he talks a little bit about Trump yeah, when he goes in the ring and he yeah, does that. Yeah. But the, again, that that bit of desperately pulling at the curtain, like Toto, and that's what it seems. You know, some of yeah. what your books seem to be doing. Yeah. Is but also what I like about your books is every now and again, as you're reading it, you do hear you saying, "You do know you're one of these assholes as well." That's what mm. I enjoy about the fact that at no point can you sit back because there's there's a point. I remember at one point in in the new one where I was actually like, "Bloody hell, the he's sneering at me now." You know, the, the, yeah. it's, and and that. Uh, I mean, that, that's what I find, because what I find interesting, I know you're doing an event with Stuart Lee, and something that I often find, you know, interesting with, with Stuart is there is a moment, and sometimes quite a long moment in his shows, where he's basically looking at him going, you, you're rubbish, yeah. you know, you disgust yeah. me. And, and there's a bit where he almost feels annoyed that he's making this number of people entertained. That to have entertained <laughs> yeah. them has infuriated him. Yeah. And he wishes they'd just go away and he could play to seven people like the number of people right. who go and see his favourite bands. And in the same way, with you, there's, there's, there's moments where I can... That, well, this that is, author's voice is, yeah. is so potent. I mean, this is, this is two things. One is my incredible debt to Stuart. Um, the, the moment where I hate the internet ultimately took form was I had pirated uh, a copy of uh, one of his stand-up specials and was amazed by it and then decided that since I had already stolen it, I might, might, I might as well also steal from it. Um, and, you know, it's one of these ones where he has a kind of, you know, you know where he's employing his Brechtian strategy and then also has a satirical nervous breakdown uh, in it. I Hate the Internet doesn't have as much of the nervous breakdown in it because uh, I don't think it was satirical at that point. <laughs> Only Americans Burn in Hell is a satirical nervous breakdown. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that I've been thinking a lot about uh, – this is incredibly pretentious – but uh, cynic philosophy – and the cynics were really interesting because they were essentially homeless people who, when you would give them money, would just insult you. Um, and, you know, the insult hopefully would have some kind of greater purpose of illustrating some hypocrisy in society. Um, I'm happy with just insulting people. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It... I, it 
Only Americans Burn in Hell really does seem to me to fit into that tradition of someone who is incredibly ungrateful to people who are reading the book, people who have bought the book, um, people who have purchased previous books. And it was not intentional. Um, one of the things that happened is after... Because, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I've said this a million times, but for your audience, I'll, I'll do this as quickly as possible. I Hate the Internet, when it was released in the U.S., was a self-published book um, that I did everything I possibly could to hide being self-published. And I had been around – I had been had stuff published on other small presses um, and, you know, no one wanted to publish that book, I think, because – Part of it is so stupid that everyone felt embarrassed either <laughs> for me or at the idea of them having to put this out and sit behind it. Um, and, you know, I like I said, I've been on other, other small presses. And I was like, well, I can do at least as bad as of a job as they've done on my past books. Mm. Um, and I had been around, so I knew how you did it, how you incorporated, how you found a distributor and it also had had this really interesting experience where I had met this Danish writer who's both a lovely person and an incredibly good writer named Dorta Norris and she would just come out uh, in English translation on Grey Wolf and I started like I went to some of her events and the thing that became immediately apparent seeing Grey Wolf is a press that actually is very, very good at promotion. Seeing um, the role of a publicist, which most West Coast presses, small presses just don't have, it was like, oh, this is all just pay to play. So I hired a publicist and who's, you know, who did an extremely good job on I Hate the Internet. Um, and Anyway, <clears throat> having done that, having disguised the book, having done all of the things that you probably wouldn't do if you were self-publishing, it managed to go out into the world and start to explode. And what this ended up turning into at the height of the explosion was the New York Times reviewing the book. And my guess is that they didn't know it was self-published. Because I think it was either the second or the third self-published book they'd ever reviewed. And they have a pretty hard policy against reviewing self-published books. Like Chris Krauss has never been reviewed by The Times because Semiotext Ooh. publishes her books. And she's one of the editors at Semiotext. Ah. And it's like, uh, you know, that's where you can see where the policy gets ridiculous mm. because it's like at this point – you know, Chris is recognized as a major writer. Mm. And the Times, like, the Times didn't review her bio of Kathy Acker, which is absurd. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, because that was... It's a really... It's interesting to mention that because I know you just saw Alan Moore yesterday as well, and one of the books that I think is... Uh, when you start to notice how many books just slip away and are never yeah. noticed, and a while ago, this guy called Barney Farmer, I don't know if you know Barney, he no. is a co-writer on, on Viz comic strips and such as The Drunken Bakers uh, and The Mail Online, and they're, they're wonderful, brilliant... And he's written this uh, this short novel 
which is basically a monologue of a drunken baker looking <laughs> through the tragedy of his life, the anxieties, right. while at the same time sometimes trying to make a Battenberg cake. Mm-hmm. And it all rhymes, and it's so brilliantly done that you don't, you often forget that it's rhyming. You know that thing where the yeah, rhythm yeah. of it, you, you don't even notice that he's actually... Je- and I think it's... Uh, and I think Alan would agree on this. I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's a masterpiece. Right. It's a fantastic piece of work. It's on a tiny, tiny little publisher. Mm-hmm. And because it's connected to what is still seen by many people as, uh, you know, a wonderfully kind of mouldy and scabrous uh, comic book, which if you buy from W.H. Smith, mm. they still go, oh, my husband used to read this, and I stopped him. You know, even though it's just... Yeah. Kind of, that if that If that was published by Faber and Faber... I think people would, right. would go, this is one of the most interesting insights into alcoholism and right. baking that I've ever read. Right. Uh, and yet instead, it will be always sidelined. It's probably not stopped by most bookshops. I just wanted to use that because I like plugging mm. Barney's works. It's fucking brilliant. But that that's such an interesting... Every now and again, when you see that bit of what is lost. Yeah. Yeah. And I had the sense with I Hate the Internet that it would do well if there were any push behind it, uh, which made its constant year and a half of rejection increasingly frustrating but anyway i'm getting to a point with all of this so the new york times reviewed the book and it instantly had uh, sort of destroyed my life and also suddenly opened up an enormous amount of opportunities that weren't actually there previously and so one of the things that i did shortly thereafter was was sell another novel to Penguin Random House, which was called The Future Won't Be Long. Um, And Serpent's Tale brought it out here, and they did a a good job on it. Penguin Random House did not do a particularly good job on that book. And it's like there were very dark interpretations of why. There were totally prosaic interpretations of why. But about a third or two-thirds of the way into writing Only Americans Burn in Hell, I realized it was the funniest thing Mm -hmm. in the world if you use that in the narrative voice because then you have... Like, Only Americans Burn in Hell could not have been the follow-up to I Hate the Internet because it would have just been a person who had had enormous success being like, fuck you all, right? But having had this massive, massive commercial failure with The Future Won't Be Long, it's the perfect pivot point to just start abusing everyone and to sort of be like, yeah, I've lost my mind. I've had a nervous breakdown. I'm converting to Christianity. I'm just going to abuse everyone and everything that I possibly can. And then after I had that insight, I I also had... This insight, which was like, there are five major publishers in America. And by and this is true, by virtue of having had such an incredible failure with The Future Won't Be Long, I was never going to be published by those people again. And actually having had that experience, and, you know, this is almost like I'd learned something, um... Having had the experience of essentially being at the pinnacle of American literary publishing, because it's on Viking, which is an imprint of Penguin, and Viking is like where real literature happens, it all just seemed like shit. It just all seemed really terrible. And it's like, I don't want to be invited to these parties. Mm. I don't want to hang around with these people. 
I don't like anything about this. This is just miserable. I, I've 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 sold my soul and for hardly anything. You know, like I just I just want to be in my house. I don't I don't want to go to these things. I don't. You know, and like the the sad thing is, it, it, the the path for the literary writer is like, if by some fluke you actually sell a lot of books, then what do you end up doing? You end up having you you know you can teach or you can keep trying to do it and probably have ever diminishing returns on each book following it, unless you're one of the. 10 people who are very, very lucky and get a lot of muscle behind it. And so realizing that I had now been rejected by essentially people I kind of hated <laughs> anyway, um, and thinking about these five companies, the thing is, with the exception of two, three of those companies are very dirty companies. Um, and so realizing that I had sort of been kicked out of this, I was like, well, someone should mention all of this and be as horrible as possible about now, How possible, though, do you think it is? Because I was thinking about that the other yeah. day, watching a thing about EMI. You know, one moment EMI signing the Sex Pistols right. uh, and then having to drop them, and the next moment they're signing a partnership deal with Thorn, who are a weapons manufacturer right. again. The, in in the, the, the state of the world now, and with the limited number in terms of media outlets are owned right. by so few people, as you said, ten, maybe it's down mm. to seven, maybe by the end of this podcast it's down to three. Uh, are you in any way, you know, in, in terms of being someone who is able to create and at the same time survive off your creativity right. will we always find out that oh I didn't know this check was signed by a Nazi is, yeah. will all, you know, that, that, that bit means that we have to be aware of a level of our hypocrisy or do you think that somehow we're able to slide through this world in any way and remain clean no there's no way to remain clean <laughs> there's no way to remain clean and it's not the only people really that I judge are the writers who seem to be from the left, even though in America that means like center right, mm. um, who were published by Rupert Murdoch. Those are the only ones that I actually judge. Everyone else, I mean, people have to eat. It's not a perfect world. Mm. But no one ever mentions it. No one ever talks about it. And it seemed to me like, you know, there's something inherently funny and inherently true about someone who was published by Penguin Random House had this massive failure, and then is in the next book just denouncing them as Nazis. Yeah. Right. Like, there's, <laughs> what, who wouldn't like that? Oh, uh, the relief of failure. Yeah. It is the, uh, but, I, it's interesting, that bit of fitting in, I find publishing dues really interesting. Yeah. Because I, I still feel when I walk into them, like, I, I would, it was the, the, the author's party for the, the, the people who published me, Atlantic, and I thought, well, I better go. I said I'd go. Yeah. And I walked in, and I walked to where the wine was, and I picked up a glass, and I arrived there in time for the, uh, you know, the head of the company to do his speech by mistake. And then I just looked, and I went, oh, I don't know. And then I walked back out again, and I thought, oh, what a relief. <laughs> I, think, I think I might be able to write another book, because I still don't feel that like I fit in at these yeah. wine and cheese dues. And, and it's an interesting... Well, I mean, the whole point of high culture is to point at everyone and tell them they don't belong, right? Mm. There's never there's never a moment where you actually belong, unless, again, you are one of these very rarefied people. But even then, I suspect those are people who are just like, what the hell? No one I? likes those people. Yeah. <laughs> it's best to want to, yeah. if we all want to stay in our attic room, 
and yeah. then yeah. we're safe in the attic room and every now and again we look out through the skylight and go um, I've got we've run out of time but I wanted to write there's a few things I have to deal with why do you hate Judas Priest and Iron Maiden uh they're terrible. Okay, fair enough. That's just my friend Michael Legg. He loves Iron Maiden. And I'm perfectly... I, 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 I'll tell you what I like about Judas Priest, though. I like the fact that Rob Halford... What I like about that area of, of metal yeah. is, one, that he was clearly out long before he came out because that was a very specific guy. <laughs> um, but two, that no one cared. Yeah. Very few people mm, cared. They're... The fans didn't go, we're not buying... They, they went, it's fine, Rob Halford's yeah, gay. Yeah, I, I, I will say, in Judas Priest's defense, their cover of Joan Baez's uh, Diamonds and Rust is... Amazing, they're really good. Also, seven minutes to me. You're trying to suck up to everyone now. No, yeah, no, no, no. I still I think they're a doing. terrible band. But... <laughs> and Megadeth will be included in that list, yes. I believe, as well. Yes. <laughs> um, the oh man, there was so much that I wanted to. to uh, uh, there's there's some beautiful. I mean, the the, the bit where you, you you says nothing nothing says academic freedom more than petrol feudalism, which is right at the start of the book, which sets up that that hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, it's right. um, the other I wanted to ask you now you're, the cover of I Hate the Internet says the Kurt Vonnegut of the Twitter age the Times yes. uh, as you explained in this book you do not it's not Kurt Vonnegut you've been nicking off both of you nicked off Celine yes. instead yes. Uh, I just very brief I wonder if you can say you sure. know, what is it again a very interesting example because someone who uh, I think John Bamble in introduction to Journey to the End of the Night actually says this is the only person who eventually became an anti-Semitic fascist who wrote a really good novel as well <laughs> at the 20th century the, the, the rest of them you, you know I, I try to when I this is what I would say about the salient thing it's not the good books that I'm ripping off it's the final book that he wrote Rigadoon which is an amazing book because it comes at the end of a trilogy and the first two books in the trilogy are just him recounting what happened at the end of World War II, he and his wife traveling across Europe. The third book was supposed to be that, but he started to die. <laughs> and so it just becomes him abusing people um, and him, you know, knowing I've got six months left or whatever it is. So he'll just insult the mailman and be like, well, they'll publish this when I'm dead. Um, and there's something about that style and there's something about the directness of the address in that book in particular that is really, really unique and is, you know, Celine was an awful person, but he did not have a lot of time for hypocrisy. You know, he's, he was a terrible, terrible fascist, but he never tried to justify it. Um, you know, like a lot of people who collaborated later when they tr when they wanted to keep writing would yo know, it was the time oh it was the circumstance oh you know what I, what I did what I did to survive as far as i know Celine was just like yeah that's me and then we bring you back to the point about don't bother having virtues you've yeah. got further to fall exactly um we've run out of time i uh Thanks so much for coming yeah, along. Yeah, thanks for and having the, me. Uh, Only Americans Burn in Hell is... What date's it out in the UK? Is it? Uh, I think it's Brexit Day, actually. Oh, so the 11th right. or Which the 12th. Yeah, yeah. Uh... So the, I think it's the 11th. So that augurs well. I'm sure the British reading public and the metropolitan elite will be very interested in my book after their society has collapsed into a pit.
Yeah, it's a fa- it's a fascinating time to watch the. I, I I just know things have gone wrong because a couple of years ago I started looking at nuclear bunkers that were for sale because <laughs> I just like the idea of the view you get from them and uh, I've noticed there's a lot fewer available now. So someone knows uh, more. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jared Cobb, it's uh, um, it's yeah, it's a it's a. Fr- I mean, I want I, one more thing actually. When you talk, do you know the work of Martin Miller at all? No. Oh, man, that was enough. just because of Fairyland. Uh, he wrote a lovely book called Good Fairies of New York, which huh. is uh, about two drunken Scottish fairies that, uh, while they're hungover, while they're unconscious, get blown over to New York. They land there, uh, and um, it's... Uh, it's brilliant. I'll have and, to look it up. Uh, he, he also wrote a book called... We wrote a lot of books. He still writes uh, Lux the Poet, which is a, a fantastic... I just wonder whether you... I was interested because in some ways the, there's a... The, the fairyland is very different in this. Right. Because the, the fairies in Good Fairies in New York are just really kind of, you know, good chutzpah-filled, uh, aggressive punk fairies. So, so there's a certain amount of kind of Rose Byrne uh, as as, as Rose Byrne is is uh, again, if you don't before you've read this book, you might think, why has he just said Rose Byrne? She's one of the the yeah. most violent, entertainingly violent fairies. Uh, only Americans burn in hell. And uh, Beck Hill, thanks for coming along again. And uh, follow uh, Beck Hill at Twitter at Beck Hill uh, Comedian, and go and see it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yeah, bye bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge. Don't forget to check out cosmicshambles.com for all of our live events and videos and documentaries and other podcasts and blogs. Uh, Some great new blogs up on the site lately from Ginny Smith talking about introverted narwhals. You definitely want to check that out. Dean Burnett's latest on antidepressant medication is an excellent and informative read. Jenny Roan talking about what was surprising about the amount of surprise, I guess, around the discovery, or rather the photo of the black hole a couple of weeks ago. New episode of the Brain Yapping podcast is out as well. Lots of new things on the horizon we'll tell you about soon. But for now, that's it. We'll be back next week with another new episode of Book Shambles. Until then, take care. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.